Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The Imitation of Christ. This is a long revered uh, spiritual discipline. I mean, it goes right back to the, the New Testament itself. God, uh, Jesus uh, calling his uh, apostles, saying, follow me, uh, is very much the same as St. Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And of course, we have the very famous uh, spiritual classic, uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. The goal of the Christian way of life is conformity to Christ. So his imprint is on our life. He reproduces his life within us. He reproduces his love in us. This is what we're all striving for. And I thought it'd be a good time this Ash Wednesday to take an extended meditation on Christ's way of the cross. The book is called No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion. And Dr. Sri is a theologian, speaker, author, has several best-selling books. And um, he is also the creator of several faith formation programs and host of the weekly podcast, All Things Catholic. And it's good to have you back here. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me, Al. This, what I love about uh, No Greater Love is the attention to biblical detail uh, that marks it. Um, so frequently in reading Scripture, people might be inclined to overlook, uh, you know, the, the, the details of the text, what Christ was given to drink uh, while he was on the cross, uh, What's the significance of uh, hyssop, for instance? Why don't you give us an example of why those details can't be overlooked? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the gospel writers as a whole, all throughout their narratives of Christ's life, you know, they're writing the climax of the story of all of salvation history. And, you know, they know the Jewish scriptures, they know the prophecies, they know the foreshadowings, the promises. And so they're constantly making connections to the story that went before. Uh, And and again, this is all throughout the story of Christ's life, but especially, I think this is especially the case when you get to the climax of the story, his passion and death, Holy Thursday night and Good Friday. Uh, It's like every little detail is just charged with great meaning. I I, I like to think of it as like you're walking through a biblical minefield and beautifully blowing up all around us prophecies and Jewish hopes and expectations. But, you know, you gave one example of of just the the hyssop branch that's mentioned, you know, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is dying on the cross, you get this little detail that, you know, he says, I thirst, and they bring up the the vinegary wine to him and, uh, and put a sponge on this hyssop. And, and as you're wondering, why, of all the things that John's gospel could tell me right now, <laughs> why do I need to know about a hyssop? Exactly, I mean, right. About <laughs> what this was, right? Right. But if you're a Jew in the first century and you read the whole story, things begin to come together. Because that, the, it's interesting that, that this would bring to mind the story of the Passover. We know in John's gospel, Jesus is his crucifixion begins at the hour when the Passover lambs uh, would have been sacrificed. So Passover is very much in the mind of the reader as they're reading John's Gospel of the, of the, of the Passion. And then, and then we read this little detail that comes later that when Jesus dies, you know, the traditional thing to do with the Roman soldiers is that they would look at the bodies and, and you know, they would want to bring the person to their death. They would, they would break the bones of the legs that, that they would use to push up their bodies to try to get one more breath. And they would break the legs so that they, they would immediately suffocate to death. 
hanging from the cross. And they go to the other two soldiers, break their uh, other two criminals, break their legs. But they look at Jesus. They go, no, he's already dead. We don't need to break their legs. Now, that's interesting. But John tells us tells us that little detail, because according to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, the, the Passover lamb was supposed to be a lamb that didn't have its legs broken. Mm-hmm. So that's another Passover detail. And then finally, when you read this little thing about the hyssop, we know that that was the kind of, of, of plant that was used to take the blood of the Passover lambs in that first Passover in Exodus 12 and, and put it on the doorpost. You know, <laughs> they took the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost to mark their houses so the angel of death would pass over it. So when you put all these little details together, it's clear the, the, the Bible's trying to show us Jesus, his death, is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of a Passover lamb. Jesus is the new Passover lamb dying to, to spare the lot of all humanity. And, and that's just one example right. of, of hundreds in the Passion narrative uh, of how the details really matter. Why is it called the Passion narrative? Yeah, you know, the passion, the word uh, passion in English is, originally is derived from the Latin word passio, meaning suffering. And so the idea is that for centuries, the Catholic Church has always called these the, the passion narratives or the passion of Christ to focus on the suffering Jesus endured on Holy Thursday night and Good Friday. Now, I think in our modern era, it can take on a different a different meaning. You know, we think of someone who has a lot of passion, right. you know, they're excited, they're, they're enthusiastic, they're determined, and I think, I think you could see that in Jesus. He's, sure. you know, fully embracing the cross for our salvation. But what I like to bring out is an insight from Pope Benedict uh, recently in his encyclical, God is Love. He talks about how God is a lover with all the passion of a true love. And, 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 and he's, he's, he truly has a passionate love for us, but it's a passionate love, not like Hollywood love, but it's a passionate love that, that drives God to come down and become one of us and, and to come take on our humanity and even, even take on death, you know, enduring this great suffering. He want, he's so passionately in love for us, with us that he's willing to do anything, go to the cross so that we can be reunited with him. And I think that that's another layer of understanding the passion of yes. Christ that we see. It's, it's God's passionate love for us for taking on the form of this total self-giving on the cross for our redemption. It's his passion for us that actually keeps him nailed to the cross, not just the nails. Yeah, I, a, a great, I, I, I lead to this wonderful insight from St. Catherine of Siena that, that is important for us as Catholics, I think, to understand, because many times we as Catholics, we just focus, our Christians in general, can focus just on the suffering Jesus endured and all the blood and the pain, right. and, and we don't want to forget that. That's very important, but we have to see it's not, the suffering isn't the center of, of a Catholic theology of the cross. It's love that's at the center. Uh, it's not like God doesn't get a kick out of seeing lots of blood and see his son being crucified, and he goes, oh, wow, I'm, I'm appeased now. That's not what's going on. It, it's Christ's complete, total, generous act of love, giving himself completely. And Catherine of Siena has, says this beautiful line, the nails could not have held Jesus to the cross mm. if love had not held him there first. Yeah, It's so beautiful that he is. loves us so much, you know. He, it's his love that keeps him there and endures all that suffering for our, our salvation. Uh, you start out, chapter 1 focuses on the great battle, and uh, we're given a look uh, at that battle in the 
uh, first section of uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. It begins in Gethsemane with this uh, eerie satanic figure uh, sending a serpent to attack Jesus. What is the great battle? What's the thumbnail sketch of the great battle that Jesus is fighting, the, the fight over salvation history? Yeah, that that opening scene is so creepy, isn't it? It like is. That eerie Satan figure it's, kind of staring. It's really well done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. But you wonder. I, I never read about that in in you know in, on Holy Thursday liturgy or, or or Palm Sunday liturgy. You know, is that really in the gospel? And it's artistic license, but it's it's artistic license that I think is grounded. Yeah. very well in the theology of Luke's gospel. Luke makes the point that the great battle really is about Jesus against the devil, and it, and it starts long ago, three years ago in, in, in the desert, in the, in, when Jesus is tempted three times, he resists those temptations. He, he defeats the devil in that opening battle. But Luke 4, verse 13, ends that scene on an ominous note. Mm-hmm. It says, and the devil departed until the opportune time. <laughs> in other words, like, the devil leaves, but he's coming back. He's right. coming back to right. strike again. And all throughout the gospel, you see these little skirmishes with the power of darkness, Jesus expelling demons, but it really reaches a crescendo at the Last Supper. In Luke 22, verse 3 and 4, it tells us that Satan enters Judas, and then Judas leaves the Last Supper to go betray Christ. And then in chapter 22, verse 31 of Luke, Jesus tells the apostles, Satan demands to have you all, to sift you all like weak. And you get the sense that the devil's on the move. He's picking off the disciples one by one. And then when Judas and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says to them, this is your hour, the power of darkness. Yeah. In other words, yeah. the soldiers and Judas coming to arrest Jesus are, are really a part of a darker force behind that is working behind the scenes. And that, that language of power of darkness is used in Acts 26 to describe the power of Satan. And so... I think Mel Gibson's right on the mark here that it really is Jesus is contending not just with Judas or soldiers or Romans or Pilate or Herod or, or the, the Sanhedrin. The, the, the real enemy behind the scenes is the devil who's attacking him. Yeah, uh, it's, it's incredibly dramatic. Um, and Luke in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, has this kind of dramatic teaser uh, he departed from him until an oppor- Satan departs from him until an opportune time. So a very conscious uh, literary craft there on the part of uh, St. Luke. When we get to Gethsemane, there's so much going on, uh, psycho- psycho- for lack of a better term, psychologically with Jesus. We get, we get a glimpse into his inner consciousness there, uh, deeper than uh, many other places in Scripture. But uh, let me ask you this. He brings with him Peter, James, and John to you know, pray with him, and then he goes off by himself a little bit. They fall asleep. But what I'm interested in is what's the significance of him bringing those three who I assume are his closest friends. And does that have any parallel with the fact that he's about to be betrayed by a friend? Yeah, I think so. There's a a, a number of things happening here. First of all, Peter, James, and John, they're kind of part of an inner circle. They've mm-hmm. been set apart before, right? right. Like uh, when, Particularly the Transfiguration, I think, is the most significant scene. Mm-hmm. Lots of parallels with that scene where they go on a high mountain. Jesus yep. took with him Peter, James, and John. 
the disciples fell on their faces. Uh, Peter addresses Jesus. Uh, the father says, this is my beloved son. Uh, there's a lot of little parallels because this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's yep. the same thing. Jesus sets aside. Peter, James, and John, they go up a mountain, the Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus falls on his face. Peter addresses Jesus. There's all these kinds of parallels there. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest connection between the two scenes is this. is Why did Jesus, some several weeks ago, set apart these three men and allow them to see his glory? Okay, hold it there. It, it, Ed, <laughs> Ed, hold it there. I've got to take a break. Music's coming up. We'll come back and pick it up from that very point. Uh, why did Jesus pick these three men who weeks ago he allowed to see his glory. We'll be right back with Dr. Ed Sree. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Ed Sree. He is the author of No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion. We're at uh, Gethsemane and uh, looking at the fact that he brought the inner circle, his closest, his intimates, you might say, Peter, James, and John, with him to Gethsemane. The question is, why did Jesus bring them? Weeks before, he had taken the same three with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Ed, pick it up from there. Yeah, I think these three are given a glimpse of Christ's glory at the Transfiguration to prepare them, to get them ready for what's going to happen when Jesus goes and begins his passion in the Garden of Gethsemane. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see his they see his face and his clothes radiant with God's glory, and and that's to get them ready for what's going to happen when they see his face sweating like drops of blood, and he's praying in his agony, uh, and that way they, they can have some encouragement that in the midst of this trial of Jesus, in the midst of his being betrayed, and then his passion and his death, that they can remember, no, this really is the Holy Son of God. We heard the Father say, you know, this is my beloved Son. So we know this really is the one. It was meant to encourage them and strengthen them for the big trial that, that's going to come their way. What about Judas? Is there a special pain that Jesus feels because of the betrayal of Judas? Yeah, there's an interesting detail that we read about in the Gospels where it tells us that when Jesus got to Gethsemane, he, it's, just a little, it's another one of those great examples. Just one little tiny line. It, Jesus tells the apostles that my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Yeah. And you just read that line, you go, oh, wow, you know, that's... You know, poor Jesus, it's really hard. Right. You know, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he's about to ex- experience all this suffering. And, you know, and that, that's true. But when we understand this language in light of the Old Testament, it, it, it sheds a lot more light on what's happening here. According to Sirach, chapter 37, verse 2, we can find the same language about being sorrowful to the death, but it's used to describe a particular kind of grief, perhaps one of the greatest sorrows in life, and that is that of a, a friend who becomes an enemy. It says this, Is it not a sorrow to the death when your companion, your friend, has turned to enemy? So think about that in the background. When Jesus says in Gethsemane to the apostles, My soul sorrowful to death, in light of Sirach 37 two, he's basically saying, I- I'm so sorrowful now because of my friend. I have a friend yeah. who's about oh. to turn into an enemy. And who's that? That's Judas, of course. Right. You know, right. And, and I think that's a be- beautiful insight. Yes, Jesus you know, is... is agonizing over the suffering he's going to face. But the greatest grief on his mind at that moment was that his love for Judas and how sad he was that this man he invested in for three years and uh, had a, you know, accompanied him all throughout Galilee and Judea for three years is, is going to betray him. Let me jump to the arrest. And uh, what's the story with the naked man? 
<laughs> yeah, this is this is such a funny story. You know, it, it, it's only in Mark's Gospel you read about this. So they arrest Jesus, and all the disciples leave Jesus, and then there's it, and then Mark tells us there's this this man that had a uh, this one he had a linen cloth, and he the, the soldier sees him, and he's so scared he went, he runs away, and and they, he even allows the linen cloth to be taken away from him by the soldiers, and he runs away naked. And I wonder, like, why do we need to hear of all the things, again, we could talk about, you know, I hear about a naked man running, and I think of, like, one of my little kids, you know, after a bath time, get some clothes on the baby, you know? <laughs> right, right. But what does this have to do with our salvation? Yeah. You know, on a basic level, it's interesting, the language tells us that uh, this man left his linen cloth and fled. Uh, and I think that reminds you of all the apostles. Mark's gospel tells us the apostles left and fled. It's the same language. Mm-hmm. And so it's showing that this man is a symbol for all of the apostles who were unfaithful that day. It also reminds you of something Peter said, uh, that Peter said, oh, I'll, I'll leave everything. We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And, and now here's this man who leaves everything, everything he has left, even his, his last garment, and, and but he leaves it. To, to flee from Jesus. <laughs> so it's like a reversal of discipleship. But I think the most important thing in the background is a prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Amos, chapter 2. It's an obscure prophecy, not as well known, but it's an important one. It, it's a, it tells about God coming in judgment on Israel. And it's interesting, it says, because Israel sells, the people of Israel sell the righteous for silver. Mm. Now, when you hear about selling the righteous for silver, what do you think about Yeah. Yeah, I think certainly. Yeah, I think about Judas, right? Of course, Judas, yeah. you know, betrayed Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. Mm-hmm. And then in the prophecy, it says, He who is stout of heart among you and among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Wow. That's Amos 2.16. So even the strong ones, like you think like, Peter, he's really strong. And, you know, these are the apostles. They're really strong. But, but they fled that day, and here you have one of the followers of Jesus. We don't know who this one is, but not one of the twelve, but maybe another disciple who was supposed to be strong and mighty and you know faithful, and, and he runs away even naked, as Amos foretold. Uh, let's jump to uh, the high priest. Uh, you've got the high priest who stands up, and that chapter is followed by the Son of Man who finally speaks. What is the significance of forcing Jesus to stand before the high priest. Yeah, what's interesting here is, you know, if you remember the story, there's all these false witnesses that come forward. You know, the, the they're giving all these false testimonies, but they don't match up. They're not agreeing. And so the, 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 the trial's kind of like at a standstill. They don't know what to do. And finally, two witnesses come forward. It's the first time you have two witnesses saying the same thing. And that's what you need for trials today, kind of, you know, but yep. even trials back then. And it's at that moment, in, in the midst of all the chaos of this trail, this trial that's not going well for the Sanhedrin, the high priest stands up. And that's just a little detail. You might just think, okay, so oh good, he's just tired of sitting the whole time. Now he's standing up. No, 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 no. We have to see, this is the turning point. This is the turning point of the trial of Jesus. Uh, the high priest stands up to kind of take control of the situation. Now he's going to use this moment to turn it against Christ. But it brings to mind this theme in the Old Testament from the Psalms, particularly, about how the wicked stand up. The wicked rise up against the righteous mm-hmm. and give false testimony to bring the person to death. And I think when you read about that little line that the high priest stood up, and there's all this language about false testimony in this trial, it's showing that this, is a, this, is a, this trial is a scam. You know, this is just the, the, the high priest is actually 
like the wicked of the Old Testament. You know, high priest should be defending the righteous, but he's like the wicked standing up against the righteous and using false testimony against him. So I think that's like, again, another little detail, and the Gospels are showing, you know, who's really the bad guy here? Who should really be on trial? Not Jesus, it's Caiaphas. I remember when I was reading the these texts long long time ago, my one of my first impressions was, Jesus, make your case, man. Stand up. Make your case. You're there silent. Why are you silent? You can do something to really put them in their place. Why is Jesus silent for so long? Yeah, I think it's because he knows that this whole trial is a farce, right? And like they're they're just they're they're stirring up witnesses to try to give false testimony against him. They're they're just dead set against. They they decided he was guilty before they even put him on trial. And, and it fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 7. It's a prophecy about the suffering servant that's going to come and take on our sufferings and our sins and bear our iniquities. But it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Yeah. So I think it's fulfilling that prophecy. Uh, but on the, on the human level, it's just he knows, you know, this. nothing I can say is really going to help. But I'll tell you, I had as a kid... I, I had that feeling, but I also had another feeling that when they kind of pressed him and the high priest finally says, I adjure you by the living God, and he's putting him under oath. He's using his authority as the high priest. You must speak. I remember thinking, no, Jesus, don't say anything. No, just stay quiet, because then they can't get you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as a little kid, I was always just like, why did you have to say it? Oh, oh that's no, good. Now you, you, I didn't know what son of man meant and all that, but I was all sad about that. And, oh, now they, they condemned him to death. If he just stayed quiet, they wouldn't have evidence against him. <laughs> that's great. Uh, <laughs> By the way, that passage, Son of Man, has confused people. Let people know what the background is to that Son of Man expression when he does speak uh, in Daniel. Yeah, it's an allusion to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, uh, one of the most famous prophecies of the Old Testament, that talks about these like four beasts. It's a vision that Daniel has of four beasts that take over the land, and they symbolize four Gentile kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, that are going to rule over Israel for the next several hundred centuries, all the way from the, the 500s all the way up to the time of Christ. But then in the midst of this prophecy, it's not just all doom and gloom and suffering. There's great hope. In the middle of the prophecy, there's a figure that comes riding on the clouds. He's given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all the peoples are going to serve him. He's going to have an everlasting reign. And this figure is called one who appears like the Son of Man. And, he, and, and Jesus uses this language. I'm the, he says you know, uh, that he's the Son of Man. And he says, I'm the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, recalling Daniel's prophecy. Now, think about what this would mean. In, in Daniel's prophecy, the one on the, uh, that's the Son of Man, he's coming on the clouds, that would bring to mind the cloud of God's glory, the, mm. the divine presence, the Shekinah glory cloud in uh, the visible manifestations of God's holy presence in the Old Testament. And so for Jesus to say, I'm that Son of Man, I'm the one on the clouds of heaven, he's basically saying... I, He's, he's putting himself in association with God, you know, like to be riding on the, the divine glory cloud. I mean, that you're saying, I'm God at that moment. And, and this, is, this is the more than anything, this is what gets Jesus into trouble that day. If Jesus said, oh, yeah, I'm the Messiah, they wouldn't like him. They'd get mad at him. But the, claiming to be a king doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be put to death. Right. You know? right. Uh, but for the Jews, if somebody claims to be God, that's blasphemy. You know, and, and that person should, should be killed. In fact, that's what they charge Jesus with. They don't mm -hmm. charge him with treason. They don't charge him with, oh, you're trying to be the Messiah. No, they charge him with blasphemy. 
and, and that's why they condemn him to death because he's he's claiming to be divine. What do they do when they hear him say make say, make that divine statement? Oh, I mean, this is right. You hear that they're they're angry. That the high priest tears his robes. Uh, they, they spit at him. They slap him. They blindfold him and say, "Prophecy to us, who struck you?" You know, this is intense. I mean, for the high priest to tear his robes. Yeah. There's there's great irony here because the high priest is yeah, that's one thing he's not supposed to do is, is to tear his sacred robes. And so you know, this is again showing the hip the hypocritical nature of, of Caiaphas. But I have to tell you, this mocking of Jesus, this scene, it, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I mentioned this in the book. Um, I, there was a, a missionary of charity sister I once spoke to, and I was doing a retreat with the sisters on uh, uh, walking them through the passion narratives like we're having a conversation today on. And the sister came up to me so beautifully afterwards and says, Dr. Shri, I have a question. And she just went on to tell me, says, you know, a couple of years ago, I was asked to teach on the passion narratives and and the whole scene is, uh, every scene is moving, but this scene, when they spit at him, they slap at him, they, they blindfold him, they mock him. Every time I, I try to teach this scene, I cry. Mm. I, I don't cry when I teach about him being scourged. I don't cry when I teach about him carrying the cross or being nailed to the cross. But this one, I cry, and I can't keep, te- I, I, I have to stop teaching, and I don't know why this keeps happening. <laughs> wow. uh, and and, and I, I just asked her, well, what are you feeling inside And when, when you start teaching? And she says, well... Why are they doing this to Jesus? Why are they treating him like this? And I think what she was getting at is the idea that it's one thing to hurt someone physically. It's a whole other thing to just not take them seriously, to hurt their reputation, to attack their personhood. And that's what's happening here. And she beautifully picked up on that. Ed, thank you so much. This is a great book. And uh, we're going to continue to recommend it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Al. God bless. No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion, Dr. Edward Sree. I'm Al Creston.